0: Hello, everybody. My name is Marcos Molitis. I'm here with Carrie Eleveld. Welcome to our weekly show about politics. Daily Cosis the brief. We have a information-packed episode today. <laughs> Things are happening in the world, apparently. And joining us will be U.S. Senator Brian Schatz of Hawaii, as well as Adam Gentleson. He is author of the book Kill Switch the rise of the modern Senate and the crippling of American democracy. So this is a show about the Senate. And, and Carrie, how, how relevant is the Senate in today's news cycle?
1: Well, I'm just going to work in a quick plug for wearing your mask. I almost always start with a mask, so I just want to do that. But how 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 important is it? Well, Marcos, you know, we spent the last like two months doing nothing but episodes on getting those two Georgia seats and F yeah, we got them. So, you know, game changer stuff. It doesn't mean we can get everything we want, but we're going to spend the hour exploring what we can get and how we can use the majority that we did get as razor thin as it is to really push forward a progressive agenda for not only this coming Congress, but just moving the nation forward for Biden's entire term.
0: I'm so angry at the deplorables for a lot of reasons, insurrection being one of them. But they didn't even give us a chance to celebrate the Georgia victories. And those were victories that were driven by amazing activists and Stacey Abrams and just this incredible multicultural, multiracial coalition on the ground. We got the Senate and boom, you know, we have an actual coup attempt happening in our capital. So I'm still a little bitter about them taking away that ability for us to celebrate what was just an unimaginable accomplishment. The Senate's also going to have to deal with with impeachment trial.
1: And we can explore that, I think, both with Senator Schatz and also with Adam Gentleson, who is a great sort of strategist about the Senate having f- former aide of Harry Reid and things like that. Let me just do a silver lining moment, OK, because we we undoubtedly no one wanted what happened last week except for Trump. Trump's cultists, right? No one wanted that to happen. That said, it does seem like it was a clarifying, in some ways, unifying moment. You know, and Republicans are are happily pointing fingers right now and they don't want to take any responsibility for their role in helping Trump to sort of perpetrate this completely fraudulent stop the steal campaign, etc. But what we got out of that is what seems to be real clarity among Democrats, house Democrats and Senate Democrats about what an important moment this is. We have a momentary flicker of conscience among c- corporate America, suddenly pulling back some of their donations to uh I mean, I don't expect that to happen long term. Corporate America's in the business of making profits, but for them to be at least momentarily pulling back donations, some of them in particular to Republicans, right? That's a huge button to press on them because that's exactly why Republicans do so many of the things they do. And I think for the people on the very left, you know, it's also been a sort of a moment of if I was apathetic before, it turns out I need to get involved. And we saw that from young voters. Anyway, we have Senator Schatz here, so I'm just gonna let you do your thing, Marcos, and give a, a great intro. To- All
0: right. So first guest is U.S. Senator Brian Schatz of the state that everybody loves, Hawaii. Senator, thank you for joining us.
2: Thank you for having me. What a treat to be able to see both of you uh, on the screen and and have a conversation.
0: We have so much to talk about in so little time, so we're going to get right started. We were all sort of shocked and horrified by the events of last week. We were supposed to maybe we were hoping to maybe celebrate the Georgia victories, celebrate electoral college count, making Joe Biden officially the president elect, and instead we watch in horror on our screens and our TV as there was an actual coup attempt that was fueled by the Republicans and by Donald Trump. So you were there. Is there any one moment that really sticks out that encapsulate what that was like to live that moment?
2: Well, the best moment was was when we were in the holding area and on a bipartisan basis with the exception of uh, Ted Cruz and Josh Hawley and a couple of others, but mostly on a bipartisan basis, we all gathered together. And once we understood that law enforcement had cleared and secured the building, that we were going to complete our work, and that we weren't going to allow an attempted insurrection uh, to intimidate us or to prevent us from discharging our constitutional duties. And so it is with that kind of mindset, determination about the next step, which is inauguration. But more generally speaking, you know, there's there's the old line, you know, the best revenge is living well. Right. And I sort of feel like the best revenge against insurrectionists is to govern well, is not just to get through these things, which are largely ministerial and for symbolic purposes that are now considered points of inflection in terms of American style democracy. It's not just about getting through these and checking the boxes and think well, we accomplished democracy. Now we have to remember that democracy is not what we have. It's what we do. And so we've got to now govern. We've got to help uh, Joe Biden get his cabinet stood up. We've got to confirm judges. We've got to reverse uh, the executive orders and ex- executive decisions of the Trump administration that we will have the authority to do under the Congressional Review Act. And then we And then I think the first thing, you know, my passion, my abiding passion is climate action. But the first thing we have to do is a COVID relief package because people are absolutely desperate.
1: That's a, just a perfect segue into what we plan to get to, which is, you know, progressive priorities, both in terms of impeachment um, and in terms of that relief package. Do you, How big do you think the direct payments can be? Do you think we can get to 2000? I know that's what uh, Biden was pushing for. But um, where do you think that stands?
2: I think we're going to get to 2000. I don't know this for sure. Uh, anything is Possible, but you know, uh, if the 2000 were on the floor as a freestanding piece of legislation, it would pass right away. Uh, we've got the president for it, we've got Republicans for it. We'll see if they're still for it now that uh, <laughs> we have control of the legislature. But Joe um, Biden's name I mean, on the
0: checks, <laughs> they may yeah. not like that anymore.
2: They may, yeah. They may rediscover their fiscal discipline now that they're not in charge of the government anymore. But no, I feel pretty confident about that. I think that there is a broad bipartisan consensus that we are not out of the woods as it relates to COVID, either obviously in terms of public health, but also in terms of the economic crisis um, that continues to cascade down on on millions and millions of Americans. And it really is hardening the lines of income inequality, because the professional class, you know, all the people who are on Twitter, not all of them, but a lot of people on Twitter, you know, oh, if I go to another zoom meeting, I'm gonna, you know, you know, I need wine, and I've, ga- I've gained weight during quarantine, all that stuff is really a class of people who really haven't lost their jobs. Household savings are up for the most part. So lots of the stock market is up. So we just have to understand, I think we're at an economic policy inflection point where you could see the kind of vast-
1: I think, did we lose him?
2: Uh-oh.
0: You may have lost him uh, temporarily. We lost
1: him. Well, let's just let's just review for a second. He, he thinks that they can get to $2,000 payments, direct payments within that COVID relief package, which I think is newsy because there is some question about that. I don't know if you want to point anything else out.
0: I mean, what, what's interesting is, and I mean, Democrats ran on this, so that is the number one priority. And and certainly it sort of drove a lot of discussion in the Georgia Senate race. Senator, glad you're back. We were talking about how the $2,000 checks were actually a big factor or at least it was a closing argument for the Democrats in that Senate runoff that gave us the Senate. So it makes sense that that is the number one priority.
2: Yeah, that's right. And you know, some of, one of the things I'm learning about public policy because I tend towards the wonky side of things is that we have to do simple things that everybody understands and everybody basically agrees on. That doesn't mean you don't make smart public policy, but it does mean that you don't want to overcomplicate that public policy with eligibility determination, with with right. sort of a whole long conversation about how to finally calibrate. And I think that that's true generally, but it's certainly true in an emergency situation when, you know, the first CARES Act correctly threw money at the problem, at vaccine, at at state and local government, at testing, at airlines, right, at um, small businesses. And, and only when it comes to helping regular people does everybody go, wait, hold on a second, let's figure out who's deserving and who's not. It's like, well, nobody tried to sort out whether Southwest versus Delta versus United versus Hawaiian Airlines deserved money. Or needed money, they all got the money. It's a universal public policy. And so I'm evolving on this. I will say on direct payments, and I think this is important a discussion for the progressive community to have. And when you do it on on Twitter, you get lit on fire by the universal basic income crowd, which can be a little challenging. But I do think that this has to be in addition to not instead of the social safety net. And We need to understand that the UBI crowd has a mix of views. And some of the UBI people are actually people who want to shred the social safety net and eliminate other government programs and put in place of it direct cash payments. Now, I'm not for that. And when you hear Josh or, or Donald Trump or some of the libertarian Sil- Silicon Valley people talk about direct payments. They are talking about using those dollars and taking money away from food stamps or state and local government or unemployment insurance. And so we got to be careful not to be um, so swept up in this enthusiasm for direct payments that it comes out of the hide of some of our other key priorities. It's totally doable, but we need to understand that not all of these people who agree with us on this issue are our friend.
1: So I don't want to, those are all important points. And I just don't want to skip over impeachment because it's going to be on the table very soon for the Senate. Do you think minority leader, soon to be majority leader, Chuck Schumer, right, called on Connell to call the Senate back? And do you think there's any chance that will happen to act on impeach uh, an impeachment trial immediately? And if it doesn't happen, you know, some people are worried this is going to serve as a little bit of a stumbling block for the initial stages of the Biden administration. What's your thinking? on
2: that yeah I mean a couple of things first I don't think Mitch McConnell is gonna is gonna permit us to reconvene prior uh, January 19th uh, although it is clearly his authority to do so and we're ready to do so that's number one number two is I guess I just want to reject as publicly as I can this premise that the Senate can or should only do one thing at a time the the amount of damage that has been done to American institutions and to Americans is just too vast for us to say well I mean can we fit that in a record reconciliation bill? I don't know. And the frame, even among liberals, has always been sort of that Rahm Emanuel conversation with Barack Obama. Do you want to do health care or do you want to do immigration or do you want to do climate? And in what order? Because, you know, you've only got so much political capital to spend. But just to be clear, I love mentioning Rahm Emanuel with with, with Marcos around his face. Around, <laughs> but I, I really do think that we should reject that framing. And, and liberals who have, especially liberals who have worked in the Senate, and I know you, I think, you have one coming on your show uh, shortly, sure. who, may, who may actually not be the typical ones. You know, when we when we work with Teddy Kennedy on XYZ, you know, we did this this year and then this the following year. Look, we're going to have, we have to, as a matter of constitutional law and as a matter of our obligation, as the United States senators, we're going to have to dispose of the impeachment. We're going to have to vote one way or another. There's a prescribed convening time and even number of hours. And so we're going to do that no matter what. You know, whether it serves as a stumbling block or a, or a distraction, I don't know. I'm not a pundit. It, but I am just not of the mind that we should sit around you know do a few judges wait for reconciliation try to do one bill and then it's August like there's just too many cascading crises uh, for us to behave as though you know we're the cooling saucer that tempers the the, the hot passions of the house and all of that stuff I mean sure we should still try to be more adult than the than the house but that doesn't mean we have to be slow there's just too much to do
0: So senator obviously when we're talking about the hundred day agenda uh, I'm not sure why we we put it that on <laughs> this 100 days thing. I know it's catchy. Obviously, we're going to be greatly constrained if the filibuster remains in place. Do you see any hope at all of that going away this Congress?
2: Not completely. You know, obviously, I'm for uh, reforming the filibuster. I'm for making the Senate work. I think the radical thing to do is not to change the rules of the Senate so that you can pass legislation. The radical thing to do is after Donald Trump is president and comes as close as anybody do to destroying our democracy from that seat, um, to enshrine a lot of the decisions that he's made in law by virtue of us adhering to a, a Jim Crow era a procedural rule. It's unacceptable. It's untenable. Whether or not you know we do away with the filibuster, I think there are reforms to the filibuster that would allow us to move faster. There's a rule, for instance, that after you have your first um, 60 vote threshold cleared, that there's a mandatory 30 hours where basically, I'd say 90% of the time, we vote Boat, and then it's 30 hours, and then we're in a quorum call for 30 hours straight. It's not that's supposed to be 30 hours of debate, but rarely is even you know two or three hours of, of those of those 30 used. And so what happens is anytime you want to pass a bill, it's basically five full calendar days, whether it's a small thing or a big thing. Now if you're doing the defense bill or a COVID relief package, five days is fine. If it takes five days, it's five days. But if you're trying to pass anything else on telehealth, on um, uh, helping tribal people with broadband. Any kind of bill that should just get a vote and then we should move on also takes five days. Our inability to dual track, our inability to process legislation quickly is a huge part of the problem in the United States Senate. None of this stuff is enshrined in the Constitution. The filibuster is a rule. We can amend our rules anytime we want to, but there's certainly no absolute right for a Senator to force the United States Senate into a quorum call, which for those of you who aren't C-SPAN nerds, basically means you're doing nothing while they pretend to call a quorum.
1: Two of the staffers who spend a lot more time immersed in Senate procedure than I do said yesterday on Slack, you know, the thing about being the majority is if there's the will, there's a way in the Senate. There's a lot that can be done and there's ways to maneuver things that you don't have to adhere to the rules the way they exist. They're all sort of like fluid. If you decide that it needs to be done differently. So, I mean, you know, there has to be, you can't just do away with the filibuster all of a sudden, but there are ways as you're talking about to sort of mitigate its effect. And of course, there's always reconciliation and things like that. But have you noticed a, a specific change in Chuck Schumer? He seems feeling his oats a little bit. I mean, have you been surprised at all by his sort of, we were witnessing some of this last year. Some of this we started to see from him, but um, I just would be interested in your thoughts. Well,
2: first of all, Chuck's very happy. I mean, he's so happy. But he's not surprising me in terms of how aggressive he's been, because I knew this was his plan all along. This is what he told voters all across the country and donors and organizers is that, you know, we're not going to squander this majority and we're going to, you know, spend politi- spend it like you got it, right? And these majorities are fleeting, especially a 50-50 majority, and then we're going to be going into a, a midterm. It may only last two years, which lends itself to the argument that we should get as much done as we can, not that we should hide under our desks and hope that people don't notice that we're progressive and then try to survive the midterm so that then we can finally get some stuff done. I think if Georgia taught us anything and if the Trump era taught us anything, it's that people want to see us fight for them. I would just say on the specific question, this is now I'm just venting, but I think it's really important for the for the movement out there. Don't reward performative losing. Performative losing is still losing. Performative losing so that you can be the hero of some story or some blast email to your support. Supporters is still losing and so we have to think about how do we rack up as many wins as we can on behalf of the people that put us into office and even some of the people who didn't put us into office. um, We have to think about how to rack up as many wins as possible on behalf of the American people and not get into this sort of Senate-focused procedural nonsense. The deal is we got to pass bills. We got to enact legislation. We got to actually help people with their $2,000 checks. We got to get a COVID relief package out there. We got to do climate action, whatever that looks like, whether it's a carbon fee or something else. We have to take action. And if anybody is failing very publicly, listen, we're going to we're going to come up short a few times that's fine but if it seems to you like they are failing for the purpose of failing up in their own political ambitions i would be just a tiny bit wary because now is the time to actually exercise power and enact legislation not talk about what you would do if you were in charge because now we're in charge
0: so with that in mind what and given the realities of the 50 50 senate of a filibuster that even if it's reform i don't see how we have the votes maybe we'll be surprised but i don't see we have the votes to actually get rid of the filibuster what should progressives really be focused on that are winnable battles in these next in this next year? Um,
2: I think COVID relief is number one because it is the most time sensitive, the most urgent, the most broadly popular. And by the way, it's sort of underestimated the extent to which this that these bills are you know they they're filled with progressive priorities. They're also filled with things that I that I object to. But listen, the, the unemployment insurance, the plus up that we did, even the PPP program was a little different than it would have been if it were configured by the Republicans because even the PPP program was an employee, like a payroll support program. So that also went to workers. And so we shouldn't sort of move past the COVID relief package as if it's not a uh, progressive uh, piece of legislation, especially uh, since we're going to be holding all of the gavels. That's number one. Number two is climate, in my view. Uh, We continue to face a crisis. And there's a ton that the executive branch will be able to do. But also, we're going to need to legislate in this space. And that is one area we think we can get bills through without needing 60 votes because of the uh, obnoxious reconciliation uh, procedural rules. And then one area where I think there's a good degree of bipartisan opportunity is criminal justice and civil justice reform. I've had some interesting conversations with Tim Scott uh, and some other Republicans who, who are not quite giving up on this particular line of effort. And I actually think even in a, in a filibuster Senate, we might be able to get uh, 60 votes for a pretty good bill.
0: What I didn't hear that that obviously is very important is, is electoral reform. How do we protect our elections, given that we're, we're already starting to see Republican legislatures start to clamp down on the kind of ease of voting that helped Democrats win? They see, now they see that as a, as a threat to them, and they're going to make it harder for people to vote anything uh the senate can do anything the senate can do to to make it easier for people to vote
2: yeah i think that one actually is i think going to depend on our ability to um break through the filibuster because i don't see getting 10 republicans for um the kinds of voter protection measures and and even funding for local secretaries of state and county election administrators um, that would be necessary just to be blunt but i think there's a there's a category of reforms including reforming the electoral count act including constraining um some of the presidential authority that sort of, now you go back and you look through statutory law and you go, oh, I guess that wasn't illegal because nobody thought, nobody contemplated that a president would exercise their power in this fashion. And the framers figured, well, if the guy gets that out of hand, he'll be impeached and removed, seriously as the sort of final check. But I think there's a pretty good bipartisan discussion about how to constrain presidential power, not excessively, but in terms of statute, fleshing out the emoluments clause and how it functions and a few other things. But on electoral reform, we don't have the votes yet. We'll have to fight in court and at legislatures. And I will just put a plug in for my friends at the Democratic Legislative Campaign yeah. Committee. Um, they're incredible and they're more important than ever to make sure we control state houses. I think about the Democratic Attorneys General Association or Association of Attorney Generals, Attorneys General, and then um, the folks who are, who work on election administration. I never thought that they would be so foundational, but we need to make sure that, that, pl- that those offices don't get populated by
1: wackos.
0: So we we're we're almost out of time. So I have two really quick questions. The first one is we have some commenters on Daily Coast that are really worried about your safety and the safety of other people in the Capitol, both elected officials and staff. And there's not a lot of trust right now in the Capitol Police or, or <laughs> any of the security forces. Do they have reason to be worried? And is there any sort of reassurance that you guys are properly protected, you and your yeah, staff?
1: B- bottom line, do you feel safe?
0: I do, but
2: look, I'm on high alert. I'm not.
0: I'm not unaware of what happened
2: uh, last Wednesday. Um, but I am confident that we've got the right chain of command now. This is a, a national uh, special security event now. There's a joint command. There are tens of thousands of people who are on this job. Capitol police is not point on an inaugural but i think it's fair to say that everybody ought to be extremely careful this is not a good week to go visit your state capitol i think everybody ought to just be extremely careful we feel protected i won't get into you know great details about that but we do feel well protected you know what we have to do in the short run is to focus on making sure that the inaugural goes out uh, goes off without a hitch we all participate in that part of the process but also that we sort out from an oversight standpoint exactly what what happened. And that has to do with whether whether or not members were actively coordinating with the mob. It also has to do with the Capitol Police's failures and maybe the failures of other others in law enforcement. Those will take a little bit longer to sort out. And job number one is January 20th and all of us doing doing our constitutional uh, role.
0: One last question. So I, Hawaii and Alaska had had a sort of closed bond, you know, two states or the last state accepted into the union. Is there any chance you could talk Lisa Murkowski into... To becoming an independent and caucusing with the Democrats, because I think she would probably be more comfortable there than remaining part of a Trump Republican Party.
2: I will just say it this way Lisa Murkowski is my friend. And, um, <laughs> um, and people use that word very loosely in Washington, DC. You usually say my friend when you mean the opposite, but Lisa <laughs> is a friend. And I leave it there. I I wouldn't anticipate that she's gonna, you know, join us. She's one of my favorite people and she's in a very
0: difficult position. Senator Bryan. Chat, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. Very insightful. Thanks, guys.
1: Wow. So just to to run over that real quick, he's talking about doing first the uh, coronavirus relief bill. Um, Then he says there's ways to do some climate action work on, you know, through reconciliation when you won't need um, 60 60 votes. votes. You wouldn't need to vote, beat a filibuster. And then he's on to potential bipartisan police reform. Yeah. uh, yeah, Bipartisan support.
0: That Tim Scott it Republican in South Carolina, he's the only black Republican, mm-hmm. I think, in all of Congress. No, no, that's not true. There's there's uh some in the House now, but uh in the Senate really for sure. Senate. Mm-hmm. And he is he is uh he's interested, and that's a good that's definitely good news. It shouldn't be a partisan issue for sure.
1: Right, but voting rights tough to do without
0: that one hurts because right now state legislator legislatures using those Republican majorities to already begin to enact restrictions on voting. For example, in Georgia, they were perfectly happy with making it easier to vote by mail on uh, when it was older white republicans that were voting by mail now suddenly democrats win there's a big vote by mail effort on the de- democratic side they freak out now they're starting to block it. so yeah, we're the, going the good news st-
1: is is that the good news is is that democrats are always better at organizing a, you know and reacting to getting bludgeoned by republicans cuz it happens all the time and uh, i think what we've proven m- most recently in georgia but also like with that wisconsin supreme court justice state supreme court justice battle there and whatever, is that is that Democrats have done a wicked good job. Um, and my Bostonian wife would be really happy that I use the word wicked there in proper <laughs> in proper context, a wicked good job of, of organizing. And we can respond. I mean, this is not the way we want to conduct our democracy, but at the moment, it's in some cases what we have to do in order to get the majorities we need and to do the things we do.
0: So let's, what do you say? Let's get our next guest on here. And let's talk about the Senate and some of those, esoteric rules. I know you've been hearing about filibusters and about uh, budget reconciliation. And that might be confusing. And it's designed to be confusing. It's designed to make sure that the Senate does nothing. And our next guest, Adam Gentleson, has actually written a book about the filibuster called "Kill Switch: the Rise of Modern Senate and Crippling of American Democracy, which is actually a fantastic title. Adam, such a pleasure to have you here. Thank you for joining us.
1: Congrats on writing a book that's like perfectly on point for this very moment. I mean, it was that like, is that just part of the capitalistic instinct for you or <laughs> I'm just
3: kidding. My, my, capitalist, my capitalistic instincts are usually pretty bad <laughs> so, <laughs> maybe the one time it worked out but no I mean you know you start this process years in advance and you know we knew there would be an election around now um, so we had that that information going for us but but everything else um, you know just transpired the way it did so.
0: What a 50-50 Senate could not have been more perfect yeah, <laughs> and I'm glad that at least we're talking about how do we move with a 50-50 Democratic Senate because it could have been very very we're very close to having it be the opposite so adam kill switch so obviously the the subtitle sort of ex- you know, kind of explains it more. But what exactly do you mean by the kill switch?
3: Well, you know, when you're when you work in the Senate or you know or around the Senate at all, you hear all the time people tell you that the Senate is supposed to be a cooling saucer, and this is intended to convey, you know, the will, the wisdom of the elders, uh, that the Senate uh, knows what it's doing when it seems to be refusing to respond to the major challenges that we face. When I was there, uh, you know, one of the things I write about in the book was <coughs> failure to respond at all to the massacre of 21st graders in Newtown, Connecticut. The Senate didn't even pass. A, a mild background checks bill, a bipartisan uh, amendment sponsored by Senators Manchin and Toomey, that came to the floor. And you're told that it's supposed to be that the reason the Senate fails to respond at all to the challenges we face is because it's a cooling saucer. And so, you know, as I did the research for the book, what I discovered is, first of all, it was not supposed to be this way to the extent that it was supposed to be a cooling saucer. The rights of the minority are supposed to be protected much less than we than they are today. But the title kill switch is intended to, to convey what the Senate has become. Uh, instead of being a place where ideas go to be debated, and developed into thoughtful solutions, it is now the thing that shuts down our democracy and prevents any solutions from being passed at
1: all. Can I just ask? And uh, you know, I covered Congress for a few years, and you know, it was I, I covered LGBTQ issues, and you know, it was a miracle that we got Don't Ask, Don't Tell repeal through at the end of December 2010, the first two years of Obama's presidency. But how much? How much do you think the, the blame for that current state goes on Republicans, and how much of the blame goes on Democrats? I mean, I, Mitch McConnell clearly a huge part of the blame, shouldering a huge part of the blame. I'm not making any excuses for that guy because I think he has just sown so much division and ruined the institution on many levels. Is there any, do you hold Democrats responsible for sort of being complicit in some ways and sort of letting this happen and backing down repeatedly? I've thought about this a lot,
3: you know, and and there was a lot of pressure from the left, as, as you will both remember very well
0: on Senator Reid. Oh, they mocked us and they laughed at us and and you were in Harry Reid's office, right, when Daily yeah. Coast was like hammering him to get rid of the- the filibuster or um, judicial nominations was it? Yeah, yeah.
3: I mean, from twenty, you know, I, from twenty ten to twenty thirteen, those three year period where he was, you know, not getting rid of the filibuster, we took a lot of flack from the left, rightfully so. You know, one of the things I quoted in the book is, you know, the day that we decided to go nuclear, I was Reed's communication director at the time, so it was actually me speaking to a reporter. But you know, I said that this is it. This has been a long journey for Senator Reed to get to this point. You know, so so he did not start out as an opponent pro- <laughs> of filibuster reform. He actually started out as an opponent of filibuster reform. So to your question, I think there is. Shared blame, for sure. Democrats, you know, when the Bush administration wanted to go nuclear in 2005, Democrats were ardently defending the filibuster. You know, everybody has been on both sides of this issue. I think a lot about those early years of the Obama administration. I just finished reading President Obama's book, you know, and at one point he says he wishes he had the foresight to have rallied Democrats to go nuclear and get rid of the filibuster right away in the beginning of his administration. The thing I keep coming back to is even though we had, you know, 60 votes at the time, I'm just not sure you could have gotten the votes. I think that back then, even as we saw what Republicans were doing to President Obama, it, there was still a sense that this was going to change, that Republicans were going to come around and things were going to go back to normal. That the Tea Party was a flash in the pan. You know, it's it's easy to think of this retroactively and think of the Tea Party as, as a continual force. But in August of two thousand nine, we thought maybe this this was just going to go away. You know, that was wrong, and that didn't prove right. It takes senators a little bit of time usually to come around, and I'm just not sure that their minds were there in those early years. I think it took all of the events that we've seen over the last few years to make very clear that this is absolutely necessary. The last thing. I would say is that now it's on Democrats and it is entirely in their hands uh, to do something about the situation.
0: Uh, Daily Kos was very much, I think, almost point going after Harry Reid, trying to get rid of of the that filibuster and having him go nuclear. Remind me, it was judges, right? Judges, except for Supreme Court, yeah. And, uh, and I remember getting a call from Harry Reid, and he had never called me before. And, and it was just, was like, it's Marcos, and I was like, yes. He's like, this is Harry Reid. You won. No more filibuster. Click. <laughs> <laughs> that was the call, <laughs> and it was the best call. And, and it, since then, he sent me like the most lovely, you know, notes and and very appreciative of him. But it was it was a it was a very surreal moment for this sort of outsider blogger at the time to. Get that call and to have the sort of big policy victory because it was considered it was it was sacrosanct, right? If you hear people talk about the filibuster, it, the the framers of the Constitution clearly put it uh, as a way to make it difficult. And the reality is, obviously, as you just said, it's not. Brian Schatz Senator Schatz earlier called it a, a relic of the Jim Crow era, which which it is. And we have obviously a Senate that already benefits Republicans structurally, right? When North Dakota and South Dakota and Nebraska and Wyoming have less population than Los Angeles right and and California gets 2 senators Texas gets 2 senators it's it's an It's a fundamentally broken institution, and the filibuster just makes it that much worse. So moving forward, you know, you say it's on Democrats, right? Joe Manchin already said he's not going to not going to move on the filibuster. Do you see any hope at all that that this Congress, this Senate, could maybe move to eliminate the filibuster, or at least severely reform it? Yeah, I actually see a lot of, and
3: I may be you know uncharacteristically optimistic on this one. But the reason I see hope is that I think events are just going to force the question to a head. First of all, you know, people raise Joe Manchin, rightfully so, because he's been very clear uh, that he doesn't support filibuster reform. And there's a couple other senators, Kristen Sinema, like Harper, and yeah, you know. Yeah, but you know, first of all, you saw a lot of the senators who were out there start to shift over the summer. You saw Coons, Tester, and others, you know, crack the door open and say, I don't want to do this, but it's really contingent on Republicans' behavior because I didn't come here to get nothing done. And if Republicans block everything, I'm going to reevaluate my stance. Th- those are not their exact words, but but I think they right. was. Yeah, that's what they are conveying. So even with and so, you know, I look at Manchin and as someone, you know, who who used to help whip votes, what I see is a whip list of like three people. And you know, if you're telling me that the whip list starts somewhere in that neighborhood, you know, that's not talking about 15 or 20 people, to me, that's a good starting place. That means you got to find a way to get this small number of senators to yes. That to me is an achievable goal.
1: Just to clarify real quick for our for our listeners. That means you only have to get a majority vote in order to change that, right? So you do not we don't have to get to 60. We just have to get to 51. Yes, is
3: that the, right? I, yes, that's exactly right. The irony is that, you know, if you want to get rid of the 60 vote threshold, you only need a majority to change the rules. That used to be somewhat controversial, but that's now set in stone because that's how Reid did it. And then that's how McConnell did it when he changed them, uh, confirmed. So it's pretty much set in stone. Um, Thank
1: you, Mitch McConnell. Yes. just
3: <laughs> <laughs> that often, but there we go. But no, I, I think I am optimistic because I think that even someone like Senator Manchin, sometime next year, probably before too long, is gonna face a very clear choice between reforming the Senate rules and, and reforming or getting rid of the filibuster, or getting nothing done and basically giving up on, on Biden's agenda halfway through the year 2021. I think that most Democrats will fundamentally decide that they came here to get things done to do big things. This may be our last time holding unified control of government for a long time. I think that events will force this to a head. And ultimately, I am optimistic that Democrats will choose to do the right thing.
1: If you were to put together a a playbook for progressives to pressure these senators, this whip list that you're talking about, or even to pressure Democratic leadership in order to put pressure on on their people. I mean, what what would that playbook look like? What what are the pressure points? And I know part of this is we just had the most extraordinary and humiliating and shameful moment in U. S. history, possibly ever. I mean, I'm just saying arguably, like I'm not not saying it's the most, but it's among the most. We're entering into an era of consequential government like we've never seen. The stakes are huge. And I just wonder what your playbook is to try to leverage that.
3: Well. I think it's important, you know. I, I think it, there's going to be an issue that forces the question, right? It's going to be some issue that Democrats cannot afford to give up on. It might even be two thousand dollar checks, right? It might be, you know. It might, and, and you know, they can't afford to not pass two thousand dollar checks and, and a robust package of COVID aid. I think that if they, Republicans block that package, on before I got on the show, I just saw a news report saying that Biden plans to do that through. You know, a regular piece of legislation, which means you'll need to get 60 votes. So, if Republicans block that, Democrats will immediately face a choice between deciding whether to weaken that patch, that package, and pass weaker, less meaningful aid, or reform the Senate rules. I think, to me, that's an easy choice. Don't let Senate rules, don't let a relic, stand in the way of delivering the aid that people need during these desperate times. So, to your question about a playbook, I think that people need to keep. Their eyes focused on the question of delivering results. You know, this isn't lashing out at Republicans. This isn't a power grab when we come to power. This is about senators who are elected. By the people of their states, delivering results for those
0: people. Uh, it's an excellent point, that, you know. And we brought it up earlier: is that that Harry Reid didn't limit the filibuster at the beginning of that, you know, that session, that term. Mitch McConnell did not limit the filibuster on Supreme Court justice it's at the beginning of his term. It was spurred by current events and obstruction that forced them or gave him at least a, the moral high ground to claim, well, you know, we need to get something done, so let's let's chip away at this filibuster. So it's actually an excellent point that. Maybe the pressure doesn't have to be at the beginning of the session because then people get really caught up on it's the rules. It's always been done this way. Why do we want to change tradition? As opposed to like, that's an excellent argument. You frame that in the context of we need results and this stupid rule is standing in the way of results, why do we still have it? It sort of creates more pressure and and then maybe Manchin at that point, although $2,000 checks isn't really great for Manchin because he already says he doesn't <laughs> support $2,000
3: checks. I don't understand that stance. This is an issue that polls like in the stratus <laughs> 80%, even in West Virginia,
0: so I'm not sure what he's doing. And on he's that. been great lately on so many different things. And suddenly, he—I mean, he was even for—he um, uh, came out. Uh, he didn't say he was for it, but he was open to Puerto Rico and DC statehood, right? Which really shocked me.
3: Right. And that much that,
0: that could also be the issue that,
3: that forces it to a head. Statehood.
1: Yeah, statehood. I mean, there's any I love this idea of waiting until there's an issue that we can grab onto, right? But I mean, and two thousand dollar checks, it doesn't ha- it doesn't matter where a mansion is on that. If the democratic leadership says it's important we get produce real results for struggling Americans right now in order to save the economy and get help people put food on the freaking table, right. Then, right. then what? Mansion thinks doesn't matter because I, I, am I wrong that we could get at least a few Republicans to vote for those two thousand dollar checks? I mean, if you get rid of the filibuster. well, I guess you have to, you need Mansion to get rid of the filibuster. Sorry, I'm like no spinning, complicated.
3: And then, and then there's a bat I mean, you know, if once you get rid of it, there will be a backlash. Republicans will, will. Say Democrats have done this terrible thing, and so they'll 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 use that as an excuse to never work with Democrats. I mean, look, they're not going to work with them <laughs> at all. No, no. They need, they need an excuse. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. I mean, they don't, but like they will. You know, they'll produce one um, just just to pass the laugh test. But but the point is that you know th- this is about what Democrats can do for the people who elected them, and they weren't elected to go there and and be armchair philosophers about Senate rules. They were elected to deliver results. These are antiquated rules. They were, as you said, they were not part of the constitution. They were developed over time, primarily by white supremacists uh, and Jim Crow segregationist senators. Uh, So they were invented for a bad reason. These rules have sometimes been useful to Democrats. And I think that's part of why there's a little bit of resistance, But but the historical record shows that there's no, uh, you know, the filibuster is overwhelmingly more useful to conservatives than it is to progressives for the simple reason that conservatives generally are the party that wants to stop things. They don't want to get things done. You know, William F. Buckley's famous phrase "They're the party that progressives want to pass things. They like to pass big legislation. They like to expand the social safety net. Um, much of what conservatives want to be get done can be done by executive actions, rollbacks, that kind of thing. You know, even when they tried to repeal Obamacare, and they did that on a 50 vote threshold because they used reconciliation rules, which is a, a weedy thing we can we can talk about if you want. But the point is they couldn't even get authority to appeal a care that this you can you know It's not a tool that conservatives will be able to use as much as progressives. Restoring a majority threshold Senate will benefit progressives far more than conservatives. And it's just something they have to do if they're going to deliver.
1: If there's, if there's a lesson that that Democrats can take away, it's that Republicans learned that giving away money is actually very popular. It's just that they gave money away to corporate America and the rich people. That's who they gave money away to with their tax break. So
3: and you're rewarded with you know, enormous donations. But, but politically, you know, we they're giving money to the 1%. We want to give money to everybody else. Uh, and I think you know, that is a, it is a successful political strategy if you give it to the right people.
0: So they say that there are no dumb questions, but this may be a dumb question. So fair warning, is there any chance of any Republicans joining in an effort to to end the filibuster. And I'm thinking maybe of a Murkowski and, and I, I don't know, maybe there's some principal person who's who's for majority role. Not at all. It's something I've spent a lot of time thinking about because we have you can sort of see this almost
3: sort of centrist party taking shape before our eyes and, and mainly taking shape in the Senate, where you have Murkowski, Collins, sort to a certain extent, although, you know, she may be a
0: little bitter, right?
3: <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, but let's just, I mean, you know, we can start with just a few people. So you've got Murkowski, say Romney, you know, and then on our side, Manchin and King. And the thing about majority rule is that it would actually dramatically empower that group of centrist Republicans. That's, you know, not my goal here, but it is still a fact that In a majority rule Senate, those people like Murkowski are far more powerful than they would be in a 60 vote Senate. In a 60 vote Senate, they're just one faction among many that you have to assemble to get to 60. In a majority rule Senate, they are the ones straddling that majority vote threshold and they will be the kingmakers on every single bill. So I I don't think it is outside. I mean, I think, you know, realistically, they're likely to do this. You could scenario where it is actually in their self-interest. If they say we are sick of the GOP, they could become an and independent. I think they'll benefit politically by doing that. And then they could actually join to, to reform the rules in a way that magically empower them.
0: That's a, that's a lot of good theory. And I actually had the same thought. I didn't expand it to Romney and, and Collins, but I was just thinking about Mansion by his very lonesome self, right? Would be quite the kingmaker. So it's it's great theory. Have you gotten any hints or sense from any of them that they're even thinking this themselves? Or is this just all in the realm of theory?
3: No, I, I want to be clear that, that independent centrist party theory is, is, is theory. I, I don't see a lot of possibility that, that that part will happen. On reform overall, though, I, I my optimism is not uh, rooted in some, some feedback and, and knowledge. Again, I'm not saying it's going to happen right away, but I do think that there is, you know, the irony here is that we have far fewer Democrats in the Senate than we did under Senator Reid. You know, we've got barely a majority. <laughs> but it's more ideologically cohesive. That's exactly what I was going to say. Yes, it is. You probably have more votes for filibuster reform now than you had when we had 60 votes in the Senate. Baucus and Ben Nelson and- Lincoln, you know, Joe Lieberman. I mean, you know, yeah. I they the... yeah. there's at least 15 Democrats when we had 60 who would pr- almost be ungettable on the filibuster. The caucus is ideologically very different right now. you probably start in the 40s, maybe in the, even in the mid 40s in terms of votes for reform. So it's smaller. But it's more dense in terms in a good way in terms of support for filibuster reform.
1: Not to mention pissed off. I mean, yes. the Democrats are pissed off right now. And frankly, I am no one wanted to see what happened last week except for Trump and his cultists. No one wanted to see that happen, but it has steeled Democrats in a way that I don't think I've seen ever since I've been sort of covering politics. And and so, you know, having having a group of Democrats pissed off. Over what they watched McConnell do over the last decade, and then to this culmination of events, it, you know, h- can't hurt the prospects.
3: That's absolutely right. I mean, I think you know this caucus, you know, they're younger, and and many of them have never had the experience of getting anything done. Uh, many of them have been in the Senate exclusively under uh, Mitch McConnell's tenure as Republican leader. So they are they are pissed off. They have no, they have fewer fantasies than than other senators do. They they are much more attuned to the political realities of our time. And I think that leads them to a place of saying, we, we've tried everything. They've, they've all tried good faith efforts to work across the aisle and get bills to the floor and try to get Republican support and it's failed. So you know, I think uh, just as I think events will, will force this to a head, with the Biden administration I think that is what has brought a lot of senators around is there's there's simply no other choice.
0: So uh, Brian Schatz was on earlier Senator Schatz of Hawaii and he he was more pessimistic on on getting rid of the filibuster although we were talking start of the session so it didn't even occur to me to push him on on you know what we've been talking about which is using The inability to pass a bill is sort of an impetus, a catalyst to to push for this change. But what he did talk about, though, was that there might be an opening for reforming some of the filibuster rules, like getting rid of the 40 40 hours of of required debate after the, the bill is that first vote. Do you have any sense on whether any of these reforms would even really matter much and if there's any chance of actually making those happen? Those, those
3: reforms are sort of tinkering the, around the margins. You know, fundamentally, what we're talking about with the filibuster is the fact that it gives the minority, could be as few as uh, a minority of 41 senators who could represent as little as 11% of the population, it gives that minority the ability to exercise veto power and block everything that comes before the Senate. And you know, the kind of reforms that you mentioned don't do anything to change that. So fundamentally, the problem that we face and the reason Democrats are going to face obstruction from Republicans and the reason that Biden's agenda is likely to get blocked is that Republicans will simply use this power to force a 60-vote hurdle to block everything the Democrats want. to. And so reforming the number of hours and all that stuff, it's fine, I don't oppose it, but it doesn't fix the fundamental problem, which is taking away the power from my minority to block the majority from doing anything. And a quick word on that, I mean, you know, the the reason, and we've discussed this before, but... You know the reason that is such an important dynamic is that we live in a polarized environment that's dominated by negative pressure, where one side succeeds by making the other fail. Ironically, this is exactly what the framers foresaw when they argued vehemently against imposing a supermajority threshold in the Senate. They wrote in the Federalist Papers that you can't give what they called a pertinacious minority the ability to block the majority because if you did, they would be unable to resist that temptation. And they would use it to embarrass the majority repeatedly. So they knew exactly what was going to happen. They foresaw Mitch McConnell. They saw him coming. And that's what we do here. You have to take that option away. You have to take the option away from the minority to just block the majority for the purposes of making them look bad and then the minority rides
0: you know, voter discontent back to power in the next election. Yeah, because the filibuster is so stupid that people don't even understand that it's real, right? So then the minority can say, ah, oh, the do-nothing Senate, and nobody understands that <laughs> the reason is because of this ridiculous rule.
3: And when we have these narrow majorities, which are likely to be the case you know, for the foreseeable future, where one party never controls more than you know, 53, 54 seats, what that says to the party that's out of power that all they have to do is wait to the next election and they can probably take back the majority. So if all they have to do is wait two years to the next election, they're gonna sit on their hands, they're gonna block the majority, they're gonna to try to show the voters that Washington is gridlocked, and then they're gonna run on that disconnect, disc- discontent to try to take back the majority in the next cycle.
1: Your, your point about two Republicans just being the anti-government party and how much more it helps them to be able to block legislation that it does, you know, hurts progressives if they end up in the minority is so very true. I I also, I want to thank you for coming on. Just so anybody who knows, when I have questions about something that's going on in the Senate, and I think, how does a smart progressive who knows the Senate inside out think about this, I go to Adam Jentleson's, uh Twitter feed, A. Gentleson, and check out what he's saying about it. And that's a lot of times what, what I use as a North Star on the Senate. And uh, I know he took time out of his busy day because he had, you know, I mean, NPR's fresh air got wind that we were going to do this interview and then decided to have Adam on. And, you know, what can you do? So, but anyway, it was great. It's great. It's been great having you on. I really appreciate it. it gives me great a lot of hope. I'm a big fan of your guys. It's it's great to be here.
0: Yeah, thank you so very, very much. And I hope uh, we'll get to talk soon again. Definitely look forward to. Carrie,
1: that was that was.
0: I mean, I, I don't know why it's, it's new to me, but it really was new to me. I was so fixated on how can we get the Senate filibuster. Reformed right now. Yes. Without I mean, realizing, without realizing that that what you're doing is you're, then you're having an argument about rules which nobody cares about, nobody likes, feels like a waste of time. It doesn't sell because it's stupid because nobody understands the rule anyway because it's such a ridiculous rule. Right. So this that idea of just work. wait till yeah. wait till blocking two thousand dollar checks. Wait until they're blocking something that is popular with people and then say, yeah, we have to get rid of this rule because I, otherwise nothing gets done.
1: I can't wait to write a piece on it that no one's going to want to read because it doesn't have <laughs> like some anti-Trump thing in the headline. But like, <laughs> honestly, it's fantastic. It's a fantastic angle. And, you know, when Adam was talking about it, he framed it as, well, you you know, if you're talking about something like getting $2,000 direct payments to people, right? Then, you know, it's either are we going to get blocked by Republicans or are we going to reform the rules? And the framing's even better than that. It's, are we going to get blocked by Republicans or are we going to deliver the direct payments that people need right Right. now in order to save the economy and get the nation moving forward? I mean, it may not be that $2,000 payments is the issue, but you know, if we're arguing about rules, if we're if we're arguing yeah. with Republicans ever about rules when it comes to the filibuster, then we're having mm-hmm. the argument wrong. So yeah. it just is it was such a clarifying moment to have Adam on after Senator Schatz, and of course, hearing from Senator Schatz was uh, Schatz, sorry, was was fantastic. But to have those two back to back was just amazing.
0: Yeah, it's it's amazing what happens when you talk to really smart, <laughs> intelligent people who know what's going on, and it's what I really love about this show. Carrie is bringing on some really smart people. So that's all the time we have this week. Woo! So much happening. Catch it. Uh, you can catch us again next week. We broadcast live Tuesdays, one thirty Pacific, four thirty Eastern. Uh, pretty soon we'll be in all the podcast platforms as well. So pretty excited about that. Moving we'll beyond YouTube and Facebook into the podcasting world. Thank you so very much for joining us. Thank you to Carrie, to Senator Brian Schatz and uh, Andrew Detlison and Walter Einenkel, who produces the show. Thank you to everybody. Thank you for watching. Catch you next week. Thank you very much.